0: Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, Genesis, A New Perspective, we are trying to breathe fresh life into this ancient text that lays the foundation for the Christian Bible. Each week we will be exploring different ways that these Genesis stories impact us and the world around us and our ways of understanding God. I hope you enjoy So as I mentioned earlier, I've been out of the pulpit for about a month, and it's been nice to be on vacation, but what that means is there's been a little bit of a lapse in what we've been talking about. Barbara did preach one sermon in the middle of my absence, but because not all of you were here, I'd like to just take a little bit of time to talk about where we've been in Genesis so that we understand where we're going with today's sermon. So we've been talking about a character in the Bible whose name is Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. Jacob is also the fraternal twin to a brother whose name is Esau. Now, it's important for you all to know that Esau is the firstborn of these two twins. And therefore, according to tradition, he is entitled to the inheritance and blessing of their father, Isaac. On the day on which Isaac intends to bless Esau, Jacob is able to trick his father into giving him Esau's blessing. Esau is so enraged, so angry at Jacob that he intends to kill him. So Jacob has to flee and he ends up seeking refuge at his uncle's house, a man by the name of Laban. Upon entering his house, he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and asks for her hand in marriage. But because he cannot afford the bride price, which is the money that you pay to the bride's family upon agreeing to the marriage, Laban requests seven years of labor in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. Jacob agrees. But unfortunately for Jacob, what happens is Rachel is the second, the younger of two daughters that Laban has. And Laban's concerned... That if he marries off the younger daughter before the older one, whose name is Leah, then the older one will never find a husband. So on the wedding night, when they go into the tent together, Laban switches Rachel with Leah. And then in the morning, Jacob wakes up to find out that he is now married to Leah. Now, if anything like me, you're probably wondering how he didn't know in the middle of the night that he was sleeping with a different woman than he was supposed to be married to. Is this a question that you all have? You should have, because if you don't, you're not paying attention to the story. So, this is a question. How did he mess this up? And so, what you have to realize is in the Middle East, in the evenings, it's pitch black. You can't see your hand in front of your face. There's not all this ambient light from cities and things like that. You can't see a thing. And then on top of that, he probably wasn't doing a whole lot of talking either. So he had no idea really what was going on. He wakes up in the morning and he sees, you're not Rachel. So he goes to Laban and he says to Laban, hey, you tricked me. You did something dishonoring. And he said, no, no, no. Actually, it is not our custom here to marry the younger daughter before the older. But you give me seven more years of labor, I would be happy to give you my daughter, Rachel. Jacob agrees, but now he is married to two women, one whom he loves a great deal, the other whom he treats with contempt. And this is where we pick up the story today in Genesis. The wife whom Jacob loves, Rachel, she has borne him no children, while Leah has borne him several children. The fact that Leah can have children and Rachel can't is a huge source of tension between these two sisters. And so, to understand why this is a huge source of tension, I would like to delve into the cultural and social aspects of what it was like to be a woman at this point in history. You've heard me talk in previous sermons about the fact that women at this time period primarily derived their value from their ability to bear children. Women in most societies in the Middle East lacked rights, legal rights, to property and inheritance. For all intents and purposes, women were property to be traded among men. And in fact, this idea that a woman is property to be traded among families, handed down from one family to the next, is still something that is very much a part of our marriage ceremony today. The tradition of the father giving away the bride is actually a holdover from our ancient wedding ceremonies, where the father was legally agreeing to transfer his daughter from his family to the groom's family. So think about that next time you go to a wedding and you hand off. see the handoff, That's actually what it's referring to from a long time ago. So, to be clear, women had no legal authority to inheritance. And so when their father died, they could receive nothing. And this is why parents spent so much time trying to make sure that their daughters would be married off. Because by being attached to a man, they had a lot less likelihood of falling into destitution. Now, women, when they married a man, had security in ways they didn't when they were single. And one of the ways that you all know is very obvious that a man provided security for women was actually through making sure that they wouldn't be hurt with violence and being attacked. Now, that's obvious. But there's other more subtle ways that men provided security for women. One way was that when a woman was married to a man her father could actually give her a dowry. Now, a dowry was simply money or goods that were given to the newly married couple at the time of marriage. A dowry is kind of like an inheritance for a woman, but again, it can only be given to her if she's attached to a man, because the man is the only one with legal standing. Now, a dowry can be used in one of two ways. One way that it could be used is to establish a new home. And so they would use that money up front either to purchase property or to get the things they needed for their house. And this is why when you see people get married today, we give them wedding gifts. Because in the absence of a dowry, this newly married couple needs these gifts to get off the ground. Now the second more common way a dowry was used was that it was saved. It was saved because oftentimes what would happen is the husband would die. And then the woman, the wife, would have no income. And so she needed some way of surviving if her husband passed away because she couldn't inherit that property. So the other thing she could do if she didn't have a dowry was to have sons. And this brings us to the third way that a man provided security for a woman. And that was with children. As soon as a woman would become married, usually at the age of 12 or 13, she was expected to begin bearing children right away. And of course, the most coveted and cherished kind of children were sons. With sons, a woman not only had someone to transfer the property of her husband to when her husband died, but she also had an insurance policy of sorts. You see, with sons... She didn't have to worry about not being taken care of until her old age. With sons, it didn't matter if the dowry ran out or if her husband died because her sons were expected to take care of her. Sons were kind of like the ultimate 401K, you know? <laughs> a retirement plan that, generally speaking, would never run out. Now, this brings us back to Rachel and Leah. Now, I find it very interesting because there's a certain irony and the discrepancy between these two sisters. Leah, the wife who is unloved and rejected by Jacob, has given him four sons in a very short period of time. Whereas Rachel, the one who was beautiful and adored and doted on by Jacob, has given him no sons. And so even though Leah is rejected by her husband, in the eyes of society, she is the better wife because she has given him children. And Rachel knows this, which drives her crazy. And so, even though she is more loved by Jacob than her sister, it doesn't really matter because without children, she has no standing in society. Therefore, it's no great surprise that these two sisters get into a pregnancy war with each other. Rachel, who is fed up with being outdone, by her sister, ends up giving her maidservant, Bilhah, to Jacob to have children on her behalf. Now, is this reminiscent of anything we've talked about in the past in Genesis? The relationship between Abraham and Sarah should ring a bell, because when Sarah can't have children, she gives her maidservant, Hagar, over to Abraham. Bilhah ends up having two sons with Jacob. Well, then when Leah hears about what's going on, she catches wind of this. She figures, well, two can play at that game. So she gives her maidservant, Zilpah, over to Jacob. And she she ends up having two sons on his behalf. And just so we're clear on the count up to this point where we are with all these kids, we have four sons from Leah, two sons from Bilhah, and two sons from Zilpah for a grand total of eight sons. But it doesn't stop there. It only gets better. Because what happens is, a little bit later after we get to eight, Leah walks in and she's carrying what the scripture refers to as a dudaim. We're not entirely sure what this Hebrew word actually means, but we think it refers to mandrake root, which was thought to have special properties that helped women get pregnant. Well, Rachel says, can I have some of that mandrake root? And... Leah says, no, I don't really want to give it to you. And she says, well, what if I give you Jacob for the evening? She gives her the mandrake root. And so that night, as a result of their encounter, Leah ends up getting pregnant with son number five. Now, you've got to wonder just how Jacob could keep track of all this, right? Like, like, you think you have to have a schedule on the refrigerator or something to figure out who you're supposed to be with on which night? I don't know. This is a problem I don't have. So, you know, I don't really know how the situation would work out, I'm just speculating here. But it's Father's Day, so any of you men out there who have this issue, come to me and tell me, I wanna be factually accurate about what I'm saying when I'm up here. (laughs) So Leia ends up having two more kids besides son number five. She has another son and then a daughter whose name is Dina, who we're gonna actually talk about in a couple of weeks. And then finally, after having 10 sons by three different women, Rachel finally gets pregnant with her first son, Joseph. Now, after hearing about all these pregnancy wars, I think one thing that is quite obvious that we can take away from this is that these two women derive their value, meaning, and worth from their children. If they have no children, then they have no value. And what I find to be so fascinating is how intertwined and how connected their own sense of self-worth is to the culture in which they live. What the culture says is important about who they are supposed to be is what they believe to be important about themselves. So, the culture says you need to have children in order to have value, and they try to live up to that ideal. And the truth is, we are no different. What makes this story relevant to our lives today is that we derive our meaning, value, and worth from our culture. Though you may not like to admit it, our culture does tend to dictate our value. And when it comes down to it, when you strip away everything that differentiates cultures, I think that where we find our value the most is where we are needed by other people. That's where the value comes into play. That's where we find our meaning. So let's take Leah and Rachel. Society says you need to have children to have value. Why? Because they were, at that time, supposed to be the primary caretakers for those children. Those children needed them in order to be raised. Thus, there you have your meaning and your value. If a woman was not able to produce children, then her value diminished significantly. Because a husband's need for a wife is only as important as the children she bears. Likewise, for a man, the value he has is all about the needs he fulfills. So, a man fulfills the need of security, as we talked about. A man prevents his wife and children from having to endure violence. But he also provides for them monetarily, either by earning money or by putting food on the table. This could be through growing crops, raising cattle, killing wild game. But the fact is, if he is unable to provide security for his family, then his value diminishes significantly as well. Because a wife's need for a husband is only as important as the security he can provide. Now in today's world, we are moving away from men and women being defined by traditional gender roles. Today, I don't think many men find their meaning and value in providing security for their family. And I do not think many women also find their primary meaning in raising children and keeping a home. These things are still important. Don't get me wrong. But I do not think that a lot of people today would say, that's what gives me my meaning and value in life. But remember, for a second, where did I tell you it comes from? It comes from how we are needed, right, by other people. And what is required for us to be needed today is so totally and completely different from any other time in human history. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So in the world of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, you needed to be strong and tough if you wanted to survive. Your intelligence was not nearly as important as your physicality. Because it was your physicality that allowed you to bear children, to raise crops, to be able to hunt wild game and to keep your family out of danger. And for the better part of tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years, that has been the primary attribute that people needed in order to be valued in society. But all that began to change in the mid-1800s with the Industrial Revolution. With the Industrial Revolution, all of a sudden, there were machines in place that could take the place of what humans did for all of these mundane tasks and it occupied people's entire lives. So, for example, washing clothes. A hundred years ago, if you wanted to wash your clothes, unless you had running water to your house, which was rare, you had to carry these things down to a river or a well and you had to scrub to get the clothes clean, a very physical, energy-intensive process. Today, you want to clean your clothes, you take them to a dry cleaner or you throw them in the washer. Press a button and leave. The only physicality required is carrying the clothes to the washer. Other than that, you have all the time to do whatever you want. Another good example of this is growing crops. Have you ever tried to plow a piece of land by hand? Have you ever tried to do that? It takes forever to do the smallest piece of land. And then again, you don't even do it that well after you're all done with it, because the stuff doesn't grow. But then, you have a machine come in to plow the land on your behalf. It takes minutes to do what used to take forever for a person to do by hand. And not only that, it requires less physicality, and you have all kinds of time to do whatever you want. And as more and more people created machines To take the place of what used to take humans all this time to do. It required less physicality on our part. And we had more time to do whatever we wanted. And as a result of this. Our society took advantage of an opportunity. That had never before been a part of human history. Which is that we began to value education. Prior to the industrial revolution. Only the wealthy had the luxury of being educated. But in 1919, almost 70 years after the Industrial Revolution began, the federal government of the United States made public education compulsory. And the reason why they did this is because they saw that many people were no longer having to do the things that had occupied their whole lives, and that if they didn't get educated, they would not be able to contribute to the economy. Because ultimately, all of these things that we were doing would eventually be taken over by machines. And so now, a hundred years later, our society has undergone a dramatic shift. What our society values more than anything else is knowledge. When you all called me here to be your pastor, you did not call me because I can lift up a boulder and smash somebody with it, right? If they're attacking you, no. You hired me. For what I know. My knowledge and my expertise. Are valuable enough to you. That you're willing to pay me for it. And the truth is. Everybody in here probably has. A similar situation. You all earn your living. Based on your area of knowledge. And expertise. Physicality. If it plays any role. In your job. Is probably limited. The only people who make significant money. From their physicality these days are professional athletes and they represent one one thousandth of one percent of the total U.S. population. We live in a knowledge-based economy and if you have no knowledge then you have no value. And so this question that we often ask in polite company, what do you do, is really a question of what do you know? And the more detailed and specialized your knowledge of a particular area, the more valuable you are as a human being. And so for those of us who were fortunate enough to go to school and get an education, we have a great deal of value. But for those of us who were unable to go to school, to go to college because we didn't have the resources, we didn't have the family support, or... We simply weren't smart enough to be able to do it. We didn't have the mental ability. Well, we have far less value. And so we are entering into a new age of discrimination. Not one based on physicality, social status, or the color of your skin. But rather, based on the amount of information stored in your brain. How sad that a person's worth can be measured by the weight of books they have read. What I want you to take away from this sermon today is very simple. Even though we live very different lives from Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, we are no different than they are. We derive our meaning, value, and worth from our culture. And in my opinion, this is wrong. God does not care about what you know. God only cares about how much you love. And not only how much you love God, but also how much you love others and yourself. You know, you come to church and you hear this all the time. You know, we talk about love and how God defines you based on love. And everybody's like, that's nice. And then we leave and we go on with our lives. Because the truth is, we would much rather be judged based on how we measure up to society's standards than to be judged based on how much we love. Because we're not very good at loving other people. We're not good at loving our neighbors. We're not good at loving our children. We're not good at loving God. And we're awful at loving ourselves. But let me ask you a question. Do you really think when you stand before God and you're looking back on the totality of your life, God's really going to care about your career, how much money you had in the bank, how impressive you were in the eyes of society? No. God is not going to care about that At all. All God cares about is how well you loved. Because regardless of what you do, when you do it with love, that's what makes a difference in this world. Love is what creates God's kingdom here on earth. So as you leave here today, what I want you to think about is how you define your value as a person. Where do you find your worth as an individual? Is it in your career, in what you know? Is it in the money you have in the bank? Is it how successful you are in the eyes of society? Is it through your children and how wonderful they are and what they have done? Or is it in the love that you have in your heart? Because if it's not that last one, please remember, it doesn't matter what you do. But when you do it with love, that's what makes a difference in this world. Amen. Thanks for listening.